0: This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin. Where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hi everybody, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is Thursday, May 6th, 2010, and this is episode 25. I'm Paul.
1: And I'm Kevin. It's getting hot in here, Ma.
0: Yeah, it's very hot these days. And we are back to talk about some of the latest in current films here in Hong Kong. Uh, Kevin, what are we going to be talking about today?
1: Today we're going to cover a bit of news, um, of course, as usual in the film business, uh, and then we're going to talk about the two men, uh, Ip Man 2 and Iron Man 2. Um, They have something in common, they may not seem so, but they both like to fight white people.
0: Wow, okay, so we've got a theme this week, it's the uh, Man Show Squared. (laughs) Um, so before we get on to talking about our movies though we're going to talk a little bit about some film news and this first story is, uh, is coming from the Film Biz Asia site and it's actually dealing with Film Biz Asia and that is uh, former variety critic uh, for Asian films uh, Derek Ellie has joined the Film Biz Asia site. Um, Kevin do you have some of the details the background details on this story?
1: Yeah, um, those who follow the Variety saga um, knows about Tom McCarthy, their, their chief critic for I think, 25 years and the fairly unhappy departure. Uh, Variety pretty much fired all their full-time reviewers in uh, in a way to cut costs and turn them on to freelance. Now, Tom McCarthy, he was essentially, from what I've heard, um, literally booted out of the Variety office. Um he was apparently given a freelance deal, uh, but he didn't take it. Same thing happened to Derek Ellie, who um if people who read Variety before they put themselves back behind this pesky paywall knows that Derek Ellie um he pretty much uh reviews all the Asian films. Now he had the same deal. So Dave McCarthy and Ellie has been looking for work. Now last week McCarthy um announced that he was uh, joining IndieWire, an American website that, of course, as his title suggests, um, covers independent films. So it's really good news that uh, Derek L.A. is now joining the Film Business Asia website because it's sort of like a I, I see it as kind of revenge because Patrick Frader, the, the person who runs uh, Film Business Asia, used to run Variety Asia before it got shut down by Variety. So I think this is sort of poetic justice that these two major forces in in variety are joining together in a way to sort of one-up uh, the trade paper's uh, coverage of Asian films.
0: Mm. Well, it's, it's certainly good that um, Mr. Ali is going to have an outlet for some of his writing and some of his critiquing that will be easily accessible by you know fans of his work and people who are looking for more critiques of Asian cinema. Um, but it is interesting to see, you know, such a heavy hand coming from, you know, traditional print industries. This isn't, you know, this isn't the only publication to do this. As, as I remember, um, this isn't the first time that uh, something like this has happened, where a, a traditional print magazine has had a shake-up and has done some, you know, cutting of heads. And it seems like, you know, there's there's fewer outlets for people who are maybe looking to get into the critiquing field, um, you yourself have been both a, a blogger and you're now writing professionally, um, you know, for, for a company. What, what do you think about the future of, of criticism on, from the professional scale? Do you think bloggers are kind of killing the business or do you think that there will be new venues opening up in, you know, with things like the iPad and more and more semi-pro and professional websites popping up?
1: I think trade papers are not catching up with this Internet thing uh, well enough. I mean, they're still kind of back and forth. I mean, you got the all the big trade papers opened up their website at some point uh, totally to readers. And Variety and Screen Daily sort of ducked back into their paywall because they figured they weren't making enough money out of the Internet. But now um, I don't think that they're adapting to this Internet thing well enough. And if they keep going down this road, i think you're right i think some of the more sort of semi-professional these bloggers who are not really quite professional writers might get their chance um i'm not sure if there'll be any more sites like Love HK Film popping up for film criticism um any cool news sort of sort of ruined it for these sort of semi-professional sites with this kind of fanboyism but um yeah, I, I, I kinda of doubt really. I mean, there's always been some kind of disparity between the, the mainstream audience and film criticism, but you still have this these group of people who are interested in reading professional reviews and we need choices because I can't read variety reviews anymore because of the paywall. I can't read screen day reviews anymore. And it's just kinda of frustrating that I can't get the new reviews for Asian films uh from these trade papers.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it and it's it's really hard to see uh, any kind of a real strong presence professionally, you know, on the ground. I mean, e- even in even in things like the reviews coming out of a paper like the South China Morning Post, um, they're behind a paywall, they're not accessible. So um, you, you know, typically have people who do it for free, do it for, you know, sort of the love of the the industry or the love of the cinema itself. But then you have a big contention between, well, they're not really professionals. But at the same time, there are a lot of really well-done sites that are drawing attention, drawing viewers possibly away from these you know sites that charge, and that's ultimately hurting the business. So in some ways, it's kind of a catch-22 system, but it seems like that the web-based services um, are going to come out on top if, if things keep going with the current trend.
1: No, I think I think that's why a site like Film Business Asia is even is right now at this point comes out at a more at a better time than ever because you've got the major two trade papers going to a paywall, and the only way that people can get reliable information, uh, for free is through this site because you know you can trust the people that run it. So I'm really really glad that this site is is still going. I'm really really glad that um uh, Mr. Ellie has joined them.
0: Mm, Yeah, it's good news all around. Um our next story uh for this week we want to talk a little bit is uh something that Kevin you picked up through the Chinese version of Twitter is that right it's uh some of the postings coming from Raymond Wong this is a uh, former happy ghost and now super producer Raymond Wong is that right
1: That's right uh both Raymond Wong and son and a lot of huge chinese stars uh including uh the immortal Ekin Chan, uh, Aaron Kwok, um, Gigi Le. Essentially, name name your favorite Hong Kong stars, and they're most likely on this thing called Sina Microblog. Uh, essentially, Twitter, but uh, I'm not sure if this this is technology that Sina has paid for. But essentially, it's the same thing. 140 characters, uh, short little status, and um, and random photos. Um, now Raymond Wong uh, runs a nice little microblog on uh, on Sina, and um, He's been uh, tweeting, uh, I guess, microblogging about uh, It Man 2. He picked up on a, a review written by someone on microblog about how he watched on his computer. Um, and and he says, he talks about how sad it is that that uh, Chinese people still watch his movies on pirate, pirate, uh, pirated copies, uh, especially his movies. And then he throws out the line and says that American films are so huge because they have no piracy in America. Mm. Um, what do you think about that, Paul? I mean, if you read my Twitter, knows how ridiculous I think that is. Well,
0: yeah, I think to say that there is no piracy in America is uh, is perhaps a slight exaggeration. Um, America definitely does have uh, stronger infrastructure in terms of security in the cinemas, but I wouldn't say that's necessarily in place to combat piracy. Um, a lot of the a lot of the things that I've seen put in place are in part because of things like 9-11 and, you know, the, the terrorism scares that have happened where in some cinemas you're not allowed to bring in bags or even handbags in some cases. You can't bring in backpacks. Um, and and cinemas also, you know, it's not like the traditional Hong Kong cinemas we talked about before where at some of these older cinemas, they don't have a snack bar, so you can basically bring in bags of McDonald's or bring in your own food, and that's sort of commonplace. But at a lot of the big, you know multiplexes in the united states they don't want you bringing in bags because they don't want you sneaking in food they want you to specifically buy from their snack bar because that's where they make all their bank um so they do have very tight security in the in the states and but also i don't think there's been a culture of you know piracy per se uh, where people are willing to take the risk of sneaking a camera in um but whereas in 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 mainland china they they really haven't done a lot to sort of curb the you know curb the the practice of doing it uh, or sort of reeducate the people against doing it and well,
1: you know uh pirated copies in America they have already sort of gone to a less next level i mean ever since I was in high school i mean five or six years ago they these people are pirating screeners they don't even bother putting bring cameras into yeah. theaters and, and
0: that's 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 typically you know, Hollywood's fault for sending screeners out in the first place. Um, If you're going to have things out in the market, then, you know, somebody somewhere is going to make a copy for their buddy and say, hey, look what I've got. And then, you know, they tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on and so on and so on. Um, But, you know, in the case of China, I, I, I remember the story we talked about, I think it was last year with regarding to the film Founding of a Republic, that when that film was put out, The Chinese upped enforcement uh, on a major level in Beijing in the Beijing area to prevent, you know, the vendors from opening shop and from selling stuff, and because they wanted people to go in and be in the cinema to watch that film rather than, you know, finding a pirated version in the back alley store. So when they want to, the government, the mainland government particularly, can put things in place, put things in practice to stifle that but they have not really ever put anything in place in terms of education or reform of you know the practices of the people and i think the other big issue that's not being addressed is the cost of going to see the movies it's still very cost prohibitive for a lot of people mm. you know especially in china where you've got a big income disparity you know you tell a poor migrant who's you know working in shenzhen in a shenzhen sweat factory somewhere they have the option of taking their 5 extra dollars of disposable income and you know getting a, a DVD a disc of you know Spider-Man or Iron Man or Ip Man and or they can save up for the next 5 weeks and go sit in an air-conditioned cinema what do you think they're going to choose um so yeah i think there's a lot of issues there i, I think it's easy to sort of say oh, well they don't do this in the US and that's why us movies are bigger and better that's i think that's an oversimplification i think that there's a lot of factors involved but obviously you can't you can't get that emphasis out there in 140 characters or less right
1: mhm well, plus also in in among uh, young film buffs in china is that they see uh pirated discs as a way of cultivating their film taste because um a lot of these films can't get legitimate releases in china so um you would eventually you would actually see in a pirated DVD shop even Western DVDs that you can't get from you can't get in a Western chain store yeah. like uh, a Criterion or, or or some Western film that was banned in Romania but then was reinstated in another so former Soviet country like it, so you you see these pirated DVD stores that are even better stocked than than an American video store yeah and I think it's, access
0: is definitely um, a key issue. I mean, I know that even some of the questionable shops that I've walked through here in Hong Kong sometimes have, like, some old movies from the 40s and 50s that I don't think have ever even seen a legitimate DVD release. And what they've got is they've got, like, a transfer that was done from an old VHS or something that you probably couldn't find anywhere else today. Um, But some of these shops have these films, and, you know, if there are film buffs out there and they want them, you know, they're going to pay 10 bucks or 15 bucks to have a copy because they don't have access to them any other way.
1: Here's the thing. I've been to a legit DVD shop in Shenzhen, um, as hard as to find, and they do have actually a lot of these old catalog titles at a very affordable price. So I think manufacturers are trying their best. They're trying to roll these movies out on home video as quick as they can, even though they're inferior uh, quality. They're they selling them up for 20, 30 trying trying to... to get people to buy legit but i think it's going to be hard to actually to to bring it into i guess enough enough to sell enough to to make the money back or to train people to that you have to buy legit releases you should buy legit releases there it is for you yeah so i think it will take a while for the change to come
0: yeah well maybe by the time founding of a party comes out they can uh, change the culture
1: no they all love the party just not iron man (laughs)
0: Right. It's time to talk about our East Screen film this week and it is the sequel to um Donnie Yen's previous take on the Ip Man character, uh, Ip Man 2. So Kevin, do you want to take us through a short synopsis of Ip Man 2 and tell us some of your thoughts about this recent or this latest incarnation?
1: Sure thing. Um I'm going to keep it short because one we was saying midnight and two um well, for for obvious reasons later on, uh, Ip Man Two uh, is a continuation of uh Wilson Ip directed. Uh, I guess we well, can't really call it biopic because none of it is really accurate to history. Um, action film, action series starring Donnie Yen as uh Ip Man, who will later be known as Bruce Lee's master, um, in Wing Chun. Now, if people who watched It-Man 1 remember at the end of the last film, uh It-Man has beaten the evil Japanese people and uh and regained the glory of the Chinese people, except he he was shot by the dirty Japanese uh general. Uh anyway, he 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 of course survived because we know that he's going to teach Bruce Lee later on in his life. And now the sequel takes him to Hong Kong. Uh what the film doesn't tell you is that the real it Man actually escaped to Hong Kong because he was trying to escape from the communists. But don't tell anyone that I told you guys, all right? Um, <laughs> so he, he's, he's now here in Hong Kong and he's trying to start up a martial arts school. Um, but of course, times are tough because um, Hong Kong is a city that's also ruled by evil foreigners. Uh, so in the beginning, uh, Donnie just sort of sits in the roof where his martial arts school is and wait for a student. Uh, until um, a man named learn played by a uh, mainland actor, Huan Xiaoming, shows up. And uh, that sort of starts It Man's career as a teacher. But it doesn't end there because he re- he realizes that there are rules if he wants to start a martial arts school in Hong Kong, one of which is having to respect the other martial arts school in Hong Kong. So um, the leader of the schools is uh, played by Sammo Hung, and he challenges uh, It Man to essentially uh, a, a spar of all the masters um so it man so the first half of the film is it man trying to gain the respect of of these other people uh other other fellow martial arts master in hong kong and then after he does so we reach the second half of the film and uh i'll keep it simple again just watch rocky 4 <laughs> and you know what happens Okay, uh, maybe a little more detail. Um, a, a Western boxer, a boxer from England named Twister comes to Hong Kong um, and, and, and for this boxing competition that apparently has no boxing opponents because when when Samu and, and all the martial arts people, they put on a display, Twister goes crazy and starts and start insulting the Chinese. So that's a job for It Man. Um, it Man to spring into action, defend the honor of Chinese martial arts um that is essentially now like i said just watch rocky 4 and you you roughly know what would happen um anyone reading my twitter would know what i think about this film i, I really enjoy the first half um just actually like in man one i think the first half of these both films are rather solid because they're actually about the character they're actually building these characters they're building the universe that that they're set in and there's actually interesting supporting characters like in the first film you have a uh, Wang Yilang playing a local teenager. Um, you have Fang Si uh Fang Si showing up in town as a, as a posing uh, martial artist, uh, challenging Ip Man. And those things are actually interesting. And in the second film, you have you have Ip Man trying to be teach martial arts and trying to gain the respect. And that's actually about about the development of Ip Man's character. And I think those are quite solid. Uh, it makes really good action action scenes as well. But then the second half, both these, both these films involve, you know, having to elevate, having to buy into this this rah-rah Chinese patriotism. And the ugly thing is they have to do so by putting down other cultures. I, I think this is sort of hypocritical when you're making fun or when you're you're villainizing other cultures for for putting down Chinese culture. You are elevating Chinese culture by putting in other people's culture. I think mean, that's very hypocritical, I think it's actually kind of dangerous for for um, for nationalistic uh, or, or for action films to go down that route. Um, personally, I, I think the the the, the portrayal of the, the foreigners was really way too over the top, way too cartoony, and even as a as a Chinese person, I just found it insulting that we have to do that. I, I, I'm ashamed actually that. Chinese people have to resort to that to make themselves feel better as a race, um, but that's just what I think. I don't know, Paul. What you're you're the Caucasian of this pair, and you're the sort of the I guess the victim of of this portrayal. So what do you think about you know Rocky It Man Four Two?
0: Yeah, well, I think you I think you pretty much nailed it. Um, it was interesting when we were watching this film. Um, it, it was myself and Kevin and a couple other people. Um, we, we had a guest with us, um, Glenn Griffith, who runs a blog. And so it was a really nice crowd of, of film buffs that we had with us watching. But I think Kevin came away the most angry <laughs> by the end of the <laughs> film. Um, I, I definitely agree that the first half of this film was, was really good. In fact, I liked the first half of Ip Man better than, uh, any part of Ip Man 1. Um, I I really loved, and I I was thinking about this. I'm wondering if, in part, it has to do with it, the fact that it was taking place in Hong Kong, and what we get to see is we get to see it Man sort of trying to negotiate, you know, building a school and and having to deal with the politics of that and with the other schoolmasters. And I really liked all of that. I really I really felt that that was the strongest part of the film. And of course, you've got Uh, Sammo there's a there's a a, just an amazing scene a fight scene between uh, Ipman and Sammo who plays uh, master of the Hungar school and he's sort of like the the leader of of the other other schools and the 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 dynamic between the two of them I think it works it worked back in uh, SPL it works here Um, and I just wanted to see a whole lot more of that and then you know as Kevin said it's the, the second half of this film just basically breaks down into uh, Rocky 4 unfortunately there's you've got um, some some really caricatured characterizations of of Westerners here foreigners here um, to, to set them up as sort of the bad guy and you know if we understand history we do know that you know, the colonial period was a terrible period in history Um but at the same time, it's it's kind of like I don't you know is 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 payback you know uh, really what the, what they're going for here? Um, I, I think you were right, Kevin, when you said that condemning other cultures that that put you down by putting them down is is you know kind of stooping to their level, kind of an idea. But I didn't you know the film was so overly cartoonish in some of these portrayals. I mean, I, I was if I recall the line correctly, at one point. Uh the Twister character basically yells at Samo's character and says at the top of his lungs, You know, get this fat yellow tub of lard out of here.
1: Uh, you oh get or... this piece of yellow fat out of here, yeah, yeah,
0: and I'm just like, oh, really, <laughs> really i mean and and then you've got the police commissioner who's a British officer, you know he's corrupt and he's he he treats the Chinese terribly. Um, you've got um, Kent Cheng in a nice cameo, playing a, a police officer—a very typical role for him—who's, you know, sort of the the in between between the Chinese community and the the British police. And so that yeah, there's a you know there's there's a lot of stereotyping that goes on here. It doesn't really ruin the film, but it just you know it's so over the top that you're you're just like. Really? Who 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 would be like that? I mean, is is it's just too extreme? Um and
1: that's the thing, if it, it's play for laughs, I mean I could buy it. I could I could I could I, I wouldn't mind so much if it's all play for laughs, but the whole movie is so self-important about you know the greatness of, of Chinese martial arts and, and and the honor in in even burning incense, and then you have Donnie coming out, that really fake revelation about how the fight at the end isn't about you know cultural superiority blah 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 yeah. it just it, it's how how superficial can it be yeah. it's well, and how and we're gonna seriously was taking itself we're gonna
0: go a little bit deeper into this topic um after we talk about our west screen film um but overall i'd say it's it's a very good film in terms of solid action the first half is very very solid i mean just seeing the first half and and some of the things between Samo and Donnie. Make the the film well worth admission in my book, and you can just kind of kick back and you know uh, put your blinders on or you know play a play your PSP or something in the second half and just try to remember <laughs> back to Rocky IV. Um, but yeah, you've you, you know some of some of the other characters, the incidental characters. Simon Yam is here, um, kind of a in a in a carryover cameo from the first film. Um, Ip Man's wife she's here, but she's like pregnant again. And she walks around the whole film pregnant, um, and doesn't really do much else other than be pregnant. And yeah, it's, um, there, the, her, I think she was a little bit of a waste in the film and because of some of the, you know, some of the, the martial arts implications, um, with, you know, Bruce Lee, there, there's some interesting messaging uh going on here that, um, that again, I think we'll talk about in in our topic segment, um, but as a film, I think it's a solid film. Definitely got some great action. Uh, first half definitely worth seeing. Second half, yeah, you can take it or leave it. All right now it's time for some West Screen news this week. Um, this first film is coming from the Film Biz Asia side as well, and that is the old 1980s uh, Jim Henson film, The Dark Crystal, is going to be getting a sequel. Um, the original film came out in 1982, and it was a bit of a uh, an odd, enigmatic film for the time. It was one of the first films, uh, Hollywood films to feature an all-puppet cast. Um uh, and puppets that were not really like the traditional Henson puppets, puppets that were not Muppets per se. Um, and I remember seeing this film as a kid and, and kind of being wowed and amazed and really being drawn into it. And I, I remember I tried to show this film to um, to my fiancé and and her sister and her younger brother and they would not have any part of it. <laughs> They got like ten minutes into it, and they're like, "Nope, that's enough. We're we're not <laughs> we're not we're not buying this." Um, so yeah, I guess the old Dark Crystal is a bit dated these days, but it'll be interesting. It, the name of the sequel is going to be called The Power of the Dark Crystal, uh, being directed by Peter and Michael Spyrig if I'm saying their names correctly. And I'm really looking forward to this. I'll be interested to see what they do in terms of. Um, it says they're going to be do- doing some motion capture. And I'm guessing if it's coming, if it's going to be, you know, co-produced with um, the Henson company, if they're still going to be involved, there'll definitely be some puppetry still involved. So uh, I'm kind of excited about this. Have you ever seen The Dark Crystal, Kevin, the original?
1: No, no, I never. I'm sorry. I I haven't seen a lot of these um, films, but uh, I, I do kind of appreciate when uh, films go back, I guess, sort of these old old-fashioned things. If there is puppetry and live action involved, it's kind of like when I watch Fantastic Mr. Fox when, you know, at the age of 3D animation, you find that you get something that's kind of old school, and it's always refreshing to see that. Um, <clears throat> so I just don't know about this 3D thing. Yeah, well, well, <laughs>
0: it's really... I'm I'm going to be interested to see what kind of a combination they come up with, but just to kind of have a movie that's going back to explore that world again... Um, with the, I think it was the Skexies and the Elders, and um, uh, I'm not sure if it will like pick up from there or if it will be a bunch of all new things, but I'm very interested to see that world again. All right, uh, next bit of West Screen news. Um, one of the films we're going to be talking about today is uh, Iron Man 2, and in this film, uh, Tony Stark's father makes an appearance via some some old footage, Howard Stark. And uh, some comments from the film's director has said that they're planning to have this character appear in the upcoming Iron Man film, which is interesting because the... Uh, or no, the upcoming Captain America film, excuse me. Um, which is interesting because Cap, the Captain America film will be taking place during um, sort of the 1940s, 1950s, World War II period. So it won't be the same actor, Playing the role because this at that at that time uh, Tony Stark's father is considerably younger, but he was supposed to have a sort of a foundational part in dealing with uh, the original Captain America. So a little bit of a film crossover coming there, and that's uh, going to lead to more crossovers later, I guess, with the Avengers films uh, that's planned for I guess in 2012 or so. Mm hmm. Um, So good news for comic book fans and comic book people who are really into the deeper levels of some of the stories that are going on. I think for, you know, the general public, they probably won't, uh, you know, pay it much mind. But uh, some some geeky news out there for you comic book geeks. All right, our West Screen film for this week is another sequel, another man sequel, and that is Iron Man. And this film uh, picks up where the first film left off with the protagonist, Tony Stark, um, fully taking on the role of uh, the Iron Avenger, as it were, uh, in the Iron Man role. And this time he has to deal with um, some politics, with the government trying to take away his suit. And a new challenger uh, coming from Russia. So uh, again, we sort of have a, have a Rocky IV reference. Um, he has a he has an enemy in the name of um, Ivan Vanko, uh, played by Mickey Rourke, who comes looking to get revenge on the Stark family for some slights that had been given to his father. And then the rest is pretty much uh, you know a typical comic book movie you get iron man in some fights and there's a little bit of political intrigue and then a big fight at the end and we're set up for yet another sequel uh, to come come later and if you really want to know more about that you got to stay until after the credits um but you know kevin what did you think this is a typical summer hollywood blockbuster um how would you compare it with the original iron man
1: um, actually, I think it's it's I'm the only one that actually likes this movie. It feels like, um, a lot of people are disappointed by this film. I, I don't know what the the word from America is yet because uh, it hasn't opened there. But it seems like a lot of Hong Kong people are are disappointed. And I don't understand why. It is it is a little different from what you might expect. Uh, after the first film, it is more character based. The story isn't really significant here. Um, the bad guys are not especially important to the Iron Man saga, and what happens to um Tony Stark here isn't also really important to the saga, but it is very important to the development of his character. It is really a sort of a character-based superhero film, and that's kind of rare. And I like the fact that the director, John Favreau, he didn't forget that Robert Downey Jr. was the best thing about Iron Man 1, and he, he gave us more Robert Downey Jr. And that's what I liked about the film. It didn't sort of forget that, that human charm while also delivering bigger action. Um, yeah. I thought Mickey work was great, I love there's this one moment that I love when he's um escaping from a prison, um and he knows that explosion is gonna come off behind him. The explosion goes off and it doesn't look it just sort of just brushes his shoulder, just like it's nothing. I I, I really love that moment. I don't know about you. I thought he was great. Some people thought he was a little too, too I don't know um bad guy, but I thought he was badass.
0: Yeah, he is Mickey um, Roar.
1: Yeah, it's Mickey Rourke. Yeah. It's Mickey Rourke playing a Russian villain. What can you, what do you expect? Um, I still like the, uh, I very much like the, the, the chemistry between Granite Paltrow and, uh, and Robert Downey Jr. Um, I thought Scarlett Johansson was a good addition f- physically for the film, um, and I, th- I like the fact that it just sort of amps up everything, including the characters, including the actors. Of course, the, the flaws are also sort of amplified this time around. The the storytelling is a little choppy, and like I said, the, the story isn't really significant to the to the to the to the saga. But and as a as a sort of a non-comic fan, um, I mean I like I like the Marvel world, but I find there's a little too much baiting, sort of too much fan baiting, I mm. think. Too much setup, mm. too much Avenger stuff.
0: Yeah, I yeah. Uh, yeah. that was that's sort of the the impression I've gotten from other people who've seen the film um I enjoyed this film a lot i you know I, I I'm a little bit different in that i and I think I've mentioned this before. I don't like origin stories, and since the first film of any superhero film is typically always an origin story, I ultimately like it less than the second film so Batman begins eh okay, you know, but it were they were sort of retreading. Some of the origin story that we already knew. Spider-Man, same kind of thing. Uh, Iron Man, same kind of thing. I loved all those movies, but ultimately I liked the part twos that came later because the character's already established, the abilities are already established, we get to see them go, and we get to see them in action. Um, And so I kind of felt the same way here. I was, you know, I was happy that the origin story was kind of behind us, but I didn't think I got to see Iron Man quite enough. Um, there, there's a lot of Robbie, Robert Downey Jr. here and he's great. Um, he's what makes the role as Tony Stark, but I wanted to see a lot more of Iron Man. Um, the villain I felt, you know, um, whiplash, I don't think they ever actually referred to him as whiplash in the, in the film, which was fine, but the, the final fight, between um, Whiplash and, and Iron Man, and uh, you've got the introduction of War, War Machine, who I think was great. I, li- I liked um, Don Cheadle in the role. Um, I think he was he was a perfect replacement, and I'd love to see him continue on in that role if they decide to do spinoff movies with War Machine. I'm there. Um, but I just felt that the fight, you know, the, the end fight between the, the main antagonist and the main protagonist was just too it, it was like there was nothing there. there um there's there's a lot of fighting between iron man and and robots and things um but i don't know it didn't seem to have that same sense that we got with the fight between um jeff bridges in, in the first film and but you know yeah i agree with everything else you said uh, i think the 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 chemistry between um Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow works really well. Scarlett Johansson was okay. I think she she f- fulfilled the role of the, the comic character she was trying to be um, rather well. But yeah, I did feel that there's a lot of fan service going on here. That it's probably, if you've not read much of the comic books, there's probably a lot of things that are escaping people. There were a couple... You know, there was there were several references, in fact, to the fact that this is going to lead into the Avengers movie and other movies that they've got planned down the pipe. And in some ways, it seems that that was taking precedence, that this was all sort of more of an origin story for those films to come, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I would have liked to see, you know, some more more of Iron Man on the screen than anything else, though.
1: Hmm. I I moving I, back to Don Cheeto, I liked him in the role, but I think compared to Terrence Howard, I, I kinda like I think Terrence Howard sort of fit the 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 intact, sometimes antagonistic uh vibe that he gives off to to uh, Tony Stark. I sort of liked him better in the role. I think I think he would have done very well in uh the way their relationship works in this film. I think he would have been better. I think Don Cheeto might have worked better in. I mean, he eases into the role quite well. Um, I liked him, but like I said, I mean, Terrence Howard works better in the context of this story. Mm. The fact that they they're this sort of an antagonistic friendship more more so than the first film.
0: Mm.
1: Um, so I liked him a little better. Um, and um, yeah, about the action, I, I kind of I liked it, but you're right. I think some of, some of the things sort of come too easily. Um there are two major things expect uh one is the the final fight uh the way i guess they uh, i guess you use it's a comic book movie so you know the way they defeat Whiplash um sort of comes a little easy and also the the middle there's a middle where um Tony Stark figures out how to keep himself alive uh that sort of came a, really a little too easy for me i yeah. think yeah. But I, actually, the film was running a little long, and, and the middle was a little slow anyway, so I don't mind so much that it was sort of streaming through things. But yeah, those are kind of the really, like I said, storytelling really is the worst part of the film. But the other stuff was so, so good that, yeah. that it's totally perfect, it's totally perfectly fine to excuse it because you're having fun watching yeah, it.
0: Yeah, and again, it all kind of boils down back to Robert Downey Jr. If you liked the first Iron Man, I think you'll get a a, a good sense of enjoyment from this film. Um, I, as I've I've written on a couple posts elsewhere, on different blogs and, and sites, I'd say that this is much closer to Spider-Man Two than Transformers Two, as sequels go. So it's a it's definitely a fun film. It's a safe bet, um, and if you like it, if you like Iron Man at all, you should definitely get out and see it. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit concast.com for more. All right, we've to gonna, we're going to move on to a a short but uh in-depth special topic this week with regard to um in, in a sense both of the movies we've talked about, Ip Man 2 and Iron Man 2, and that is to talk briefly about um some of the trends with regard to race and nationalism in cinema. So, as Kevin was mentioning earlier, Ip Man 2 uh, plays very strongly on race and on some hegemonic ideas and some discrimination, and in in the portrayals of some of these over the top characters during this time period. And this is not a new trend. Um, we've seen these same kind of ideas played out before in earlier Chinese films, um, Fearless being one. And and in looking back, some of the people I've talked to have said that actually Fearless is still the best of this batch. It, it has uh, the best overall, you know, narrative, and it, and it handles this issue in the best way. Um, but Ip Man, the original Itman, Man, Ip it Man 1, uh, had this issue with the, the portrayals of some of the Japanese in that film. Uh, True Legend, which we talked about a few months ago, um, has a similar uh, idea that just sort of comes out of the blue uh, by the end of that film. And you can even see this uh, to some extent in films like Echoes of the Rainbow, which we've already talked about or forever enthralled uh, to some extent so Kevin, I would like to pick your brain a little bit mm. on what what you make of this sort of trend of building sort of a nationalist idea in in Chinese cinema um using sort of race as the you know the the the, the the spark to ignite some of these feelings. Um, and as we were talking uh, after one of the films, um, one of our other film group members had mentioned that they get the sense from discussions with other people, non Americans, uh, that American films are often viewed in a very similar manner. That, you know, when you see a, a hero like Iron Man or Spider Man, that they are, in a sense, you know, representing a sense of American nationalism. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, I think, I guess, having grown to American culture, um, you, you're kind of desensitized. I guess when Iron Man jumps out of a plane and onto a stage where a big American flag is behind him, Americans won't make much of it, I think. Um, not even the liberals, because they just sort of see it, I think, as a a mild kind of satire of extreme nationalism as you know weapon a former weapons maker throwing out the big flag to show you know how big i think some people would kind of read into that as not nationalism um but i think that's something that's missing in chinese pop culture we watch chinese television um every day they're showing multiple episodes of of dramas about world war ii where Japanese play the villains. It's this Jap this 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 villainy or, or villainizing is not I don't even know if that's a word. Uh, villain villainization of 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 foreign culture, especially Japanese culture or Japanese um, circa World War II, is it, kind of part of mainstream Chinese culture. It is so, is so in it that it's kind of hard to get rid of it. Um and it all again apparently it all goes back to history um about you know, World War II. Um, and it's as popular a topic for Chinese culture as it is World War II and Nazis for American culture, I think. Mm. Uh, I think you put it in that context, it might make a little sense. It might make a little more sense. But um, if you, did, and again, look back at the, just look back at the, nat- the, the Chinese national anthem. It was written at a time uh, of, it's a, it's a song about defending against the enemy uh fighting and 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 having to and standing up i think this whole standing up after it's been insulted thing this this sort of standing up after chinese the chinese people have been put down thing is sort of a huge part of of i guess chinese culture
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um especially contemporary chinese culture um, they feel that, I think Chinese people or Chinese people in general feel that they're, the entire country has sort of been uh, pushed around by foreign culture for a long time. Um, I'm not clear on the history, uh, but apparently for a long time. And now that China is, is sort of rising back up very quickly uh, in comparison to become sort of a superpower, they feel that they sort of have to play up that mentality of a of, 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 of recovering Chinese culture, of a uh, Chinese culture standing up again. Mm. against the foreign superpowers um i guess in that context you could sort of understand it does that make it it's okay does it mean the way that uh a lot of chinese pop uh, pop culture products the way they go about uh elevating or, or encouraging this nationalism mean is okay i don't think so i think it's very heavy-handed i think it's it's even a little i think it's even extreme you uh, sort of lean towards radical radicalism yeah for me yeah. um is it okay? No, but I think it's understandable why I guess Chinese people, Chinese uh, mainstream culture would 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 express nationalism in that fashion.
0: Yeah, I think I think from my perspective, you know, as as somewhat of an outsider, but also somewhat of a, a scholar on Chinese history, that it's interesting to see these films come out and and present this idea of of okay, we're Chinese and and Chinese have to you know rise up and unify and but at the same time it's it's this imagery of han chinese identity right um because you know one thing that is is we're we're never really shown in a lot of cinema is the fact that actually there are a lot of other minority peoples who are also chinese but they're not sort of given the same status as the the you know the dominant majority the han chinese um, and so you see, you see something like this where Chinese are being oppressed and then ultimately, you know, they, they overcome, uh, you know, and in many of these cases, they're overcoming foreigners who are oppressive and have, to, and, and cheat in, 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 you know, over the top ways because they don't want to lose. Um, but ultimately the, the protagonist overcomes, but then you, you think about, you know, what does it mean to be Chinese identity, to have Chinese identity? Um, do they feel the same about the Tibetans? You know, are the Tibetans supposed to, to, to rise up and, and be themselves and overcome oppression that some of them feel that they're, you know, get receiving from the mainland government? You know, it's, it seems in some ways that it's this, it's this sort of fantasy um, that they, they like to refer back to, but it's not applied evenly, um, in many senses. And I'm not, I'm not saying that they don't have a right to do that, do this, and they don't have a right to, to portray a sense of nationalism in their films, um, you know, because I can easily see it in, in, you know, a superhero fantasy, like a Spider-Man or, um, or a Batman or a Superman, um, you get this imagery all the time but i think you're right in in understanding that for many americans it they they've kind of become dulled to it because they don't really they see it all the time and they they're not really thinking about
1: it Great. Bring in bringing in a film that we just talked about iron man 2 i think mean, that's more sort of the more disappointing things i think about that film is the the characterization of the russian villain ivan ivan Vanko. Mm. um they they set him as uh getting revenge for his father because his father was um the co-inventor of the uh arc reactor technology that 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 keeps Tony Stark alive, but they sort of just simplify as why the Russian scientist was ousted. They say, Oh, he was greedy. So he was, so he was wrong anyway. Yeah. I think if they have went sort of a different way, I think that's sort of a more subtle, <laughs> subtle, I guess, portrayal of this American. You know, I ser- think
0: back in, I think back in the comic book, um, that character was because the comic book was back during the cold war period. So that character was, con- you know, uh, he was supposed to be like a double agent or a spy or something. And, oh, okay. and, and you know, they, they've they kind of, I guess they've modified it to reflect current political sensibilities. But that is a good point. You know, you do have this this us versus them kind of mentality here. The, you know, the, the Americans versus the Russians. And that was present in Rocky IV as well. But it's a little bit different here because, you know, Rocky IV was very political and you still had some of this Cold War idea going on um at that time here it you you don't have that as much and i think it's because it's this personal family grudge that's they don't really play up a lot of the reasoning you know it was it was a business falling out in a sense between the two fathers and now it pits the two sons so it doesn't give you this this same sense of of some of the you know conflict that you get in for example Ipmuntu where it's very much in your face you know mm-hmm. that 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 the, the these these British guys are very much um, offensive and and racist, and you know they they are gonna deserve basically the beating that
1: they're gonna get. Well, I mean, it meant too. It was obvious that the filmmakers had an agenda. It was obvious that they were they were trying to. Okay, it does come conspiracy theory, but it almost seems like they're trying to suck up to the Chinese audience and and even for Hong Kong people. Um, to the Chinese audience by showing that oh look, we Hong Kong people actually didn't like the colonial 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 period. We hated the British too. We we're one of you. It's it almost seems they had that kind of agenda going in.
0: Hmm.
1: And yeah, that's an it,
0: interesting perspective.
1: It, it's kind of this revisionist history. They're not even being subtle about it. It's so obvious, and that is why that Wilson Yip is saying that Chinese audience in in mainland Chinese theaters are literally applauding and and, and screaming and in. And and when they when they watch when they watch Ip Man fighting you know fighting beating up the British man
0: yeah well and so, it's it's interesting too because I think that the one one of the saving graces of the second half of the film is the final monologue by um, Ip Man Donnie Yen in which he talks about issues of respect and and you know. Um, you know, mutual exchange and and these ideas, ideas that were very much sort of the principles of Bruce Lee, uh, you know, in, in the films and in the work that he wanted to do. And, you know, being this character who sort of served as a bridge through his cinema between the East and the West. I mean, we could, we could sit here and we could argue the merits, but I mean, basically the reason why Donnie Yen is uh, somewhat of an international figure is he owes a lot to, Bruce Lee, um, who sort of paved that way. And in, in, when you look at some of the issues that he touched on in his films, like um, in, uh, which one was it? Uh, uh, I always get the English titles and the, and the original titles confused. I think it was the Fist of Fury, which was the one about the Japanese occupation. And mm-hmm. Bruce Lee was the student who had come back from, from Japan Right. and you know they had the whole sick man of asia mm-hmm. um scene in that movie and then you know th- they dealt with similar issues there that we're seeing in sort of ip man and 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 in uh some of the other films we've seen like uh fearless but it just seems that they weren't as over the top back then and yet it's 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 presenting you know a, the, this idea of the of the conflict between these two peoples but it seems to be doing it in in a somewhat I don't know I don't want to say smarter but a, in a somewhat better manner for terms of storytelling because it's not so much in your face i mean it 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 is you know in a sense but it, it vindicates itself a lot better than i think some of these films have been doing because i i think it's got that sense like you're saying that the directors and, the, and the, the producers are kind of putting these things in on purpose and they're not really serving the story. They're simply serving to build that, that sense of um, nationalism, I guess.
1: Here's the thing. It's been 40 years since Bruce Lee have done that. I mean, you can perfectly excuse a film for having over-the-top portrayal of these foreigners. Uh, if it was you know, 40 years ago, it was the 70s. You can excuse it if it's from the seventies, but this is a it's tw- this year is the year twenty ten. I mean, how we're supposed to be, you know, in harmony, even though the the central government is promoting harmony. I mean this this sort of and I won't go that far, but I think it's, this this hate monging. It's it's ridiculous. It's setting like I said, when we, after we watched A Man Two, I said this set back race relations by fifty years <laughs> in mean, this movie.
0: Well, I hope it's not that far.
1: <laughs> it, it's really ridiculous. Um I don't know what what was I don't know why the audience are still buying these things. I, I think film critics uh, in Hong Kong have picked it up. Uh, this this ugly sort of racism that's going on, they picked it up. They they they've talked about it. Um, they've written about it. But audiences are still flocking there. And I read uh someone reporting on microblog that a, a woman in the screening was pissed that Donnie didn't didn't kill the British man at the end.
0: Hmm.
1: So you still I don't know where this prejudice is coming from. I don't know why. Why we we Hong Kong people or Chinese people or Hong Kong people has sort of set itself back that way in in sort of viewing we foreign cultures. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll just have to you know sort of keep a watch and see how how much further this trend goes on and continues. Um, I I to be honest, I'm kind of getting tired of it. Um, I, I we mentioned back when when we saw the the ending of True Legend, how that seemed just so totally out of place. Um, the, the police officer, the foreign police officer in, uh, Echoes of the Rainbow, you know, we mentioned that you, you'd never have a, uh, you know, one of the foreigners during that time period working as a beat cop going around, you know, collecting bribes basically. Um, and in a sense it is sort of very much sort of placating this sense and, 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 you know, sadly sort of revising some of the history as it were. Um, and hopefully, film filmmakers will get the point and they'll they'll stop doing it. But I think as long as it's driving sales for them in the north, that all the critics in Hong Kong can thump and shout and
1: and cry foul, and it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. And um, I want to ask something about It Man Two. I know I know you you were saying that the speech at the end of uh, It Man Two was uh, sort of Brought it back, pulled the, the the extreme stuff back, but I I think the opposite. I think it makes makes the intention of the filmmaker even 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 more obvious. The way they were saying, oh wait, we have to sell this to America, so let's let's have this speech about respect and how it's not about cultural superiority. But the whole film is about cultural superiority. I mean, one two minute speech for me wasn't gonna change a thing. Mm. If it's uh, if, for me, it worked that way out. But um, yeah, I guess.
0: All right, well, I think that's going to kind of wrap things up. That's going to wrap up our topic, at least. Um, next time, we, don't, we won't have any new films to talk about, but we're going to talk about some DVDs. I think uh, we're probably talking about the new uh, Yatterman DVD release. Um, Kevin, did you have a DVD you were thinking about talking about for next time?
1: Yes, I'm aiming to talk about a French film called 35 Shots of Rum, but um, since I work at a radio re- retailer, I'll try and find um, more movies to talk about next week as well.
0: All right. And uh, I'm hoping to get uh, some of our friends who uh, spent some time over at the Udine Film Festival uh, recently to come on and share some of their thoughts from the film festival with us. So. Until next time, uh, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you then.
1: See you next time, everybody.
0: I, I went and read that Ebert review on Human Centipede. Oh my gosh!
1: Yeah, that that movie sounds really sick. I mean, I, and 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 he's got a diagram. Aperni's one hundred percent medically correct.
0: Oh, that's just oh. Oh, uh,
1: yeah. Makes you lose your favorite. in. Are, are, are
0: you going to watch that?
1: Oh hell no. <laughs> hell no. I I could barely watch watch like Hostel. I watched like the la- I watched five minutes of Hostel two and it's. Well, it's like,
0: like I I couldn't figure out what to make from his review because, um, it kind of sounds like it's along the lines of maybe like Machine Girl or, you know, um, some some of the Japanese stuff, but. Then it sounds like it's trying to take itself seriously.
1: So, I I read I read like Wikipedia has a pretty pretty detailed plot description. I was like, no.
0: Well, wh- nope. I mean, what else is there to be a plot about? He's making a centipede person. You know, it's that's pretty much it, right?
1: Well, I mean, halfway through the movie, he succeeds. <laughs> so. <laughs> So he spent half the movie, I think, watching this dude torturing these three people. Their soul together. Like, I mean, I'm kind
0: off. of, I'm kind of intrigued about the special effects. I mean, you know how how do they pull this off? Is it just three three actors who are you know have their noses up each other's butts, or is there some kind of prosthetic involved?
1: <laughs> this this is what I think. Kevin Smith loves to write about ass-to-mouth, but I (laughs) don't mean he imagined that that one. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) It is
0: brown-nosing to the extreme.
1: Oh! (laughs) Yeesh.